the low making show. We've been incredibly frustrated with the fight against fascism. Um, I don't know what could be more uh, clear than the attacks on the Capitol, attacks on democracy, than um, folks storming the Capitol. But this is where we are. The FBI has said that it is not coordinated, as 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 spoken by the uh, by Reuters in a report. But that's not going to stop us from fighting fascism. So we have to bring forward every single tactic uh, to fight fascism, and. Of course, this is something we discuss on the show all the time. Feminism is a key aspect of that. Uh, Ava, I'm going to see if I get your name right. Majewska, is that correct? Uh, is the author of, perfect, thank you, is the author of Feminist Anti-Fascism, uh, Counter-Republics of the, of the Commons. She is a feminist philosopher and a former affiliated fellow at the Institute of Cultural Inquiry. Uh, Ava, thank you so much for joining us and for writing about this. I'm going to mute my line because these crazy cicadas that come out every 17 years or so are are in my ears so right now. But our audience knows I'm on the road. So, so um, let's just start off with what what inspired you to write this book at this moment, um, given your work in this space for so long. Uh, why why did we need to talk? Why was it that that this needed to be said that that um, a great, probably the best tool to fight fascism is through the feminist movement. I thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much for having me um, in your show. And I'm really happy to contribute to, to spread the, um, not only the anti-fascist good news, let's say, but also um, uh, this idea, which some years ago still seemed a little bit abstract and now it's becoming concrete, that feminism is perhaps at the core, at the center of today's anti-fascism. This is actually the fantastic discovery that I've made some time ago during uh, uh, a conference about anti, uh, about actually fascism and the roots of fascism, the research, the research of fascism that was conducted at the Polish Academy of Science two years ago in, nine, uh, in 2019, when we hosted several fantastic scholars from, from Britain, from, from Poland, from, from Germany, who were speaking about um, fascism and opposition to it in this very, I would say, male-centered way. So they were fantastic and very polite people who were extremely open to the idea that women exist and that we also, you know, contribute to politics and to uh, and to uh, culture. Yet they were using um, uh, the very traditionalist paradigm in which. Um, political philosophy is, let's say, here, and then feminism is located somewhere on the margin. So basically, they, 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 they agreed to the fact that feminism exists and feminist politics exists and feminist theory exists. However, they were sort of conveniently locating it at the margin of the spectrum of the political theory. So therefore, there was anti-fascism, which was somehow not feminist, not anti-feminist though, but not feminist, and then feminism somewhere on the outskirts. So what I'm, the operation I'm trying to do is actually to say, okay, today, especially in the political movements, in the mobilizations against ultra-conservatism globally, basically, because we speak about the United States of America, we speak about um, Brazil, about Poland, about other countries, Spain, the Mediterranean, where you are actually, so also Greece and, and uh, Italy, and other places where um, feminists oppose to the return of the ultra-conservative ideology. Um, but also the, the movement uh, uh, Black Lives Matter 
it has been described and, and orchestrated by women, basically, right? So um, at this point, it was actually possible to say that the feminist agenda is actually at the core of anti-fascism. So we cannot anymore locate it on, uh, locate it on the outskirts, on the margins. We have to see it as the core. And so when we look at today's fascism, when we look at fascist tendencies, let's put it this way. So when we look at the politics, anti-misogynist uh, politics of, of Donald Trump, for instance, those aspects where, where, where he really treated women as objects and tried to find ultra-conservative way of, you know, marginalizing women, of, 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 of reducing the, our reproductive rights and, and political position. When we look at Bolsonaro, when we look at Kaczynski and our Polish government, who recently uh, restricted tremendously the, the right to abortion, we see that today's, anti, uh, today's fascism actually um, uh, locates body politics, uh, reproductive rights at the core. So therefore the answer to today's fascism has to acknowledge um, this shift in, well, it's not a shift in perspective because if we look at Nazi Germany, obviously they also knew where the woman's place um, is. However, today, I think the resistance to gender theory, gender studies, you know, all this anti-gender movement. So I was also inspired by scholars who are researching today's far right, obviously, when, when I was reading their uh, work, Elżbieta um, Korolczuk, for instance, Agnieszka Graf, they, they published also in the American journals. They, um, uh, they speak about today's fascists or today's right wing as anti-women, uh, anti-LGBTQ, um, anti-reproductive rights. So I was like, okay, so probably next step in this, in this theorizing is that today's anti-fascism has to be feminist. Otherwise it will just meet the, uh, miss the point. So although racism, anti-refugee politics, et cetera, et cetera, are obviously still also at the core of the fascist politics, somehow, <clears throat> the politics of the body, the politics of the um, uh, of, of, of gender is actually also um, central. So this is maybe... Uh, <laughs> no, this is, this is, this is fascinating because, um, you know, I'm, I'm in the US and the progressive movement, um, in some spaces in the progressive movement, there is a debate between uh, whether or not we should lean on identity politics or not. And I personally find myself uh, frustrated with this uh, often because I think it's overly simple to just say, you know, identity politics, um, quote unquote, identity politics is used as a weapon sometimes by capital, um, by, you know, uh, those in power to to basically marginalize arguments and, and push them out of the equation. But simultaneously, uh, there's an intersectional approach to this. And and I think, you know, when when you say that feminism needs to be part of the anti-fascism um, uh, strategy or, or, or women, arguably, and supporting women and, and, and putting it forward, whether it's reproductive rights or, or other rights, putting women's voices forward. That's the strategy for anti-fascism. But is misogyny almost universally a strategy for fascism, uh, alternatively? Because I feel as if this is not discussed enough and made clearly enough that, you know, when, whether it's Bannon's toolbook or, or the the five star movements to whoever it is, it, it always seems to be a centerpiece. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And I would say, in in my book, the the last uh, one of the last chapters is called um, is, uh, discusses um, weak resistance. And uh, this idea for weak resistance is basically that in order to um, 
I wanted to say to revolutionize the, uh, the political, um, the thinking about political agency, but I can also say in order to Uh, perhaps um, uh, um, revision, uh, uh, revise, sorry, the um, idea of political agency. We have to look at it from the perspective of those who have been conveniently put on the margin or discriminated against, etc. So if we look at the traditional model in the political philosophy, a traditional model of political agency, it's always highly heroic, super masculine. It's shaped to the... Um, Uh, uh, to the uh, uh, it's shaped for the masculine socialization. It's shaped for men, basically. So if you are a woman, you have to adjust. You have to either be as strong, as brave, as heroic as or the you know historical men were, or otherwise you have to gain this heroic and strong position. So. Um, and this is also a tendency in fascism. You know, if you look at the ideology of Karl Schmidt of, of Nazi Germans, you see there. Um, this Ubermensch, they even they even say it. They want to produce the um, turbo uh, uh, men. And actually, in English, it's a convenient uh, language because uh, men is uh, is the same word for for men and for like humanity. So basically, what they want is a Ubermensch, Uber person, Uber Uber people. Um, uh, so um, so if if we want to really um, Revolutionize, I, I, I will use this word. If we want to revolutionize the political theory, if we want to make it feminist as it should be, we need to look at the structure of how we understand political agency. And we simply cannot any longer understand it only via those criteria, criteria of heroism, of uh, sacrifice, of strength, of force, of explicit um, expression. We have to look at those who have been resisting. And here I, I was very much inspired by a Czech um, theater uh, writer, but also a president of Czech Republic, Václav Havel. So I tried also to look at theories uh, from, 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 from my region uh, of the world. And I found Havel who was amazingly interesting in, in his essay say the power of the powerless, um, where he spoke of this, resi of this mundane, perhaps, everyday resistance that you can perform even if you are desperately um, uh, searching for a means of expression and even if you know that the empire is much stronger than you are and whatever you can imagine is probably futile and yet still you can perform, you can, you can persist in, in this resisting position. So I was thinking of all those people who were Um, survivors of, of, of traumatic moments. They are also not perhaps, uh, I'm not trying to say that they were not heroic or that they were not brave, but bravery or heroism is not the first aspect you see. You might be looking at a very weak, a very um, tormented person, and yet they survived, they resisted, they didn't give up. They basically were politically active in ways that for some reason, I mean, for patriarchal reasons, we're not thematized as proper political agency. So what I'm trying to say is basically that to be political does not necessarily have to mean to be brave, explicit, um, uh, articulate even. Uh, 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 James Scott depicts uh, the peasants in South uh, East Asia who sometimes are protesting only by marching, whose... Uh, 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 postulates and demands are sometimes even not explicitly mentioned. Those people are just um, continuing on protest in silence sometimes or with some banners, but um, not in, in those ways that we tend to imagine as political agency. And yet, there we are. So basically, rethinking the, the strategies of oppression 
and uh, and um, uh, producing an intersectional feminist criticism of it is one part of what I'm trying to do. But another part is basically to look at resistance as not only performed by means of fight, by means of um, articulate expression, sometimes dissimulation, you know, this kind of resistance that Judith Butler is depicting in Gender Trouble uh, in, in the practices of drag. This is a very nice example of, 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 of I would, something that I would call weak resistance. It's not, you know, it's not a powerful, you know, strength-based performance of politics. It's basically a politics which um, dismantles the, the gender binary codes, which uh, uh, puts a question mark over how we imagine femininity, masculinity, and other forms of being a human, uh, a gendered human being. I, I hope it answers. answers. <laughs> no, of course, this is very, very, very thought-provoking. Um, so, so obviously sexism is not universally just uh, held by the fascists. <laughs> uh, we, we, we struggle within the movement as well. And, um, I think sometimes it can be difficult to, uh, explain how forms of sexism exist on the left while simultaneously trying to build solidarity around supporting women and making, um, feminism a centerpiece to the anti-fascist movement. What would you advise for folks who, you know, maybe maybe there are men in the movement who, or women, who see themselves as feminists, but may not necessarily fully understand all aspects of, of what it means to be a feminist and how that's crucial to um, the anti-fascist movement. And, and I, I say that in a sense of, okay, so maybe being in solidarity. Like if, if a member keeping it very simple. If a member of a squad is being attacked by uh, somebody on the internet who has sympathies towards um, fascists or is just angry <laughs> or whatever, um, mm -hmm. how, how do we ask our, our allies to support women who are being courageous so that they, there is this more collective, universally collective um, solidarity you know, in, 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 and backing them up because the truth is, is if you do have the courage to step forward as a woman, you're likely to get attacked more. Absolutely. I, I think there are all kinds of, and, and very, very many ways. So basically what I'm going to say is probably quite particularly built in my own, um, I don't know, scholarship and, and uh, activist experience. But one of my greatest uh, teachers, although I never met her in person, was Bell Hooks. And I actually translated uh, feminist theory from margin to center uh, into Polish. And I was one of the first people to teach uh, 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 about feminisms of color. So I work also quite a bit with uh, Chicana feminism. So, so with Gloria Anzaldúa, Cherry Moraga, and, and uh, other writers who, uh, whom I find extremely inspiring. And uh, it was actually the professor Paula Baqueta from uh, University of Berkeley in, in, in uh, University of California in Berkeley, who introduced me to uh, to those um, well to to Anzaldúa and, and and Moraga, especially. And I'm super. And she's also practicing transnational feminism and. and uh, anti-fascism since many, many years. So she's also somebody whom I value tremendously. So basically there are all kinds of ways, but let's come back to Bell Hooks for a second. So Bell Hooks advises that men are also, um, are also responsible for feminism. They, they, they should not only be allowed a place within feminist struggle, but they, they, as, as sexism and patriarchy um, makes men um, 
far less happy and fulfilled creatures. Um, it's actually advisable for men to revision, uh, to, to revise sorry, and to, to revolutionize perhaps their ways of being. So for instance, um, exclusive privileged uh, behaviors, all kinds of silencing of those who seem weaker than, than, than who we are are practices that have to be revised. And this is extremely difficult. I, in, in my essay in EFLUX, which can be found online, I depict a situation where I play a board game with four colleagues of mine who are men. And for 45 minutes, they speak among themselves. It's incredible. You know, we play, the four of us, and I start feeling like a five-year-old younger sister of those boys who is absolutely not, giving any, not given any voice. So, I do what I usually do in this kind of situations when men are, you know, talking to each other and I'm out. I basically uh, speed up and start to win. That's actually, that's, that's, that's something, you know, that's um, something that some people have basically is like certain intellectual capacity and the audacity to, to use it. Okay, you don't listen to me. I'm going to write one book, two books, five books, perhaps, you know, after the 10th book, I'm going to be heard. So basically some people, probably it's connected with some mild, uh, you know, autistic spectrum. Some people go to <laughs> go to the skills they have, whatever they are, artistic, you know, intellectual, whatever. They, they try to, or, uh, you know, connection building. So being a friendly organizer, a friendly manager even, or I don't know, in all kinds of professions, you can have this. So, so that's one, one of the strategies is kind of to try to gain your voice, basically. So for instance, within the discussions about, the, about let's say, the artistic or intellectual canon, I'm very much forward to attribute, uh, to attribute authorship to women, to people who are queer. There are now fascinating discussions in the art sector about how do we make inclusive collections, not only in the sense of having enough women in the collections, which used to be a concern, but also, you know, what about non-binary people? What about, you know, do we want to have a representation of lesbian art? And then how many percents, let's say, of the art collection? So basically, you know, so on one hand, there, there is, there is uh, an effort to gain some voice, to actually establish yourself as an author, but not in authoritarian way. So this becomes tricky already, because obviously the typical anti-authoritarian strategy not to be authoritarian is to resign from authorship. But then the authorship goes back to where it used to be always, to white privileged men. So I'm not sure if we can afford if we can afford this kind of, um, how do I say, generosity. I think that as underprivileged people, um, many of us might want to uh, exercise authorship, perhaps in a deterrent, you know, perhaps in a shifted way. Perhaps we can share authorship. Perhaps, for instance, when we speak on this show, it's your show, I'm the guest, so basically it's it's collective effort, right? It's like difficult to, so, so, so that's a way of avoiding this kind of stardom that used to be so individualistic. So I'm speaking about it also in my book about um, counterpublics of common understood as also an effort to dismantle this individualism, which is at the core, not only of liberal politics, not only of conservative politics, but also unfortunately of many progressive social democrat and otherwise progressive uh, uh, politics where there is the, the me, and I'm the so basically I'm always a little bit you know it's a problem for me to put my name on a book because there is so many so this is why the thank you part you know the the, the um, credits um, list is so long because 
I feel that there were students of mine who wrote the book in a way with me, in a sense that when we were working in seminars and lectures, obviously they were contributing to my anti-fascism, also teaching me what anti-fascism is today. They are 20 years younger than myself. So basically we had fantastic conversations about how anti-fascist theory and anti-fascist practice has changed and how, for instance, the notion of privilege is central today. wasn't like this 20 years ago. When I was, you know, beginning to put my step, first steps in, in activism and anti-fascist theory, privilege was not at the center in the, in the debates, at least in Poland or in this part of Europe. Um, it was rather masculinity. We were trying to silence men, for instance, to say like, okay, you go silent, basically. For the whole meeting, you sit silently and listen. We were actually performing this kind of experiments. So we're saying, okay, one meeting is going to be conducted by women only. You're going to sit there and maybe sometimes take the voice, but if you can sit silence for, 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 for two hours, it will be fantastic because it's going to show us how, you know, how even, you know, on the audio level, it's different voices. I, I have quite a low voice for a, for a woman, but still it's much higher than the majority of male voices. And men tend to only hear those low uh, um, uh, uh, Also, this same audio kind of discrimination goes for accents. It's, 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 it's fantastic and scary to what extent uh, in Poland, for instance, Ukrainian people often speak very well Polish, but they have very heavy Eastern accent, as we, as we say it. It's a little bit like, I don't know, people from South America in America who speak full, uh, fluent uh, English, yet they have heavy accent. And then racism begins already on this level of how, you know, somebody hears the accent and they go like, oh, you're not a full citizen. You're probably something worse. And this is a typical racist thinking, although the color of the, of the skin is not visibly different, right? But racism uh, uh, begins somehow in, on this level of, of, of the audio. So basically doing all kinds of experiments and performing all kinds of unusual situations of reversal of power used to be a strategy that we were doing in all kinds of ways. Also in the classroom, Polish language is gendered. So we can address uh, um, somebody by, uh, as, a, as a woman or as a man. We are trying to experiment with them Although in Polish we have a neutral version also, but it's very much kind of objectifying. It's very much for objects. So not everybody who is non-binary wants to use this pronoun. So the son of my friends, for instance, Adash, the fantastic Adash, who wants to be non-binary, they are now uh, 11 years old. In English, they function as they, so it's easy. But in Polish, you know, they don't want to be this neutral uh, pronoun. So they change the grammar um, uh, the declination, the um, uh, conjugation of, of verbs, and they invented their own grammar. So I'm trying to learn it. It's very difficult. It's very new. But uh, you know, so for instance, trying to make uh, new um, communication forms, new organization forms. This is not very difficult. It takes five minutes to adjust to a new um, uh, scenario. So these are kind of small steps that if we do every day, we are more careful, I think, on daily basis about those distinctions and differences. And we know from sociology, from Pierre Bourdieu, from from, from Algisar, from from Judith Butler as well, from Rancière, how those little markers of class, they they were, you know, the French theory works on it in class context, but Fanon works on it in in, in anti-colonial context. So basically there are all kinds of spectrum. So if we practice on daily basis, this kind of little differentiation, and also if we try to use difference 
in order to learn more egalitarian worlds. That's already good. But I think that we also need to think, and this is why I speak of counterpublics of the common, and this is why I try to sort of kidnap the notion of public sphere and take it away from the hands of liberal or conservatives, because I don't want it to be only in their hands. I also want to be capable to discuss the public sphere. And this is what outraged my anti-fascist colleagues in, in, in Poland, because they told me public sphere is such a reactionary concept. I was like, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> it can be. We can very well make it not only inclusive, because I don't want to, like, I don't feel entitled to include anyone. So I'm very careful with using this inclusivity uh, notion. Uh, but yet, I know many people who have fantastic uh, intentions and who are practicing it well. I cannot use it, basically. So I'm, I don't want to include anybody. I think we are diversified already, and we need to... In our everyday thinking, in our everyday practice, we need to understand that the world is already diversified. That there are groups of people, entire groups of people, who's, who, who remain invisible for us, even if we are leftists, feminists, queer people, whomever else. We might not notice that our neighbor belongs to some sort of group that we didn't even think of existed. Like, for instance, people with disabilities, we learn right now, uh, or, or psychological uh, uh, we shouldn't use this, the word disorder already, right? But like, there's, there's people have multi, there's multiple identities attached to people, and and exactly. what right. somebody puts forward as first versus second, and it, it depends on the circumstances. You know, simple example: I'm in Greece right now. Uh, I am a Greek American, but when I'm in the U.S., I identify more as you know as every every aspect of you comes out in different ways at different moments based on your community and what you want to put forward. Um, I want to, I want to touch base just real quick because the public sphere is really interesting to me. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're not in a democratized world where the public sphere is accessible to everybody and, and everybody's voices are given the same uh, strength. I mean, we, we started off the show talking about how, at least off record, how this show um, on Fridays is, is here because it is the, the political YouTube site is a very male dominated space and the algorithm is, is, has been outed as being sexist and racist. Um, and, and, and I fear, I personally fear that the silencing of other voices, whether intentional or not, or dealt with or not, or acknowledged or not, um, these things shouldn't be debatable, but they are debatable, right? Debated right now, uh, maybe intentionally. So, so that they're not actually dealt with. But it's a form of uh, silencing is a form of fascism. So, you know, get back to the, 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 the first part is fascism has a toolkit and silencing opponents and silencing dissent is a big part of that. And if if feminism is a central part of, of, of challenging fascism and fighting fascism, you know, when the space, the public forum is not egalitarian, how do we fight, especially in a monopoly world that we live in today? You know, how do we take that on? I mean, are there strategies we're not seeing today for the modern world that, that didn't exist 50 years ago or 100 years ago that we're just not seeing? I'm uh, uh, so for the for the debate about public sphere. I'm looking at the <laughs> at some Polish events that happened in 1980s so or around the year where when I was born. So a time that is distant, not only geographically for US American people, but also you know, <laughs> chronologically. Um, uh, but many of us probably heard the name Solidarność or Solidarity still. And uh, it was a movement that was created by means of resistance. So, and it was a solidarity strike that started after a woman worker of the shipyard, a woman who was not working in an office, who was a crane operator, 
was fired three months before going to retire. So it was a terrible, you know, terrible situation. And this woman, as she was a motherly figure for a lot of people in the in the shipyard in Gdańsk in Poland, uh, obviously um, her firing caused a lot of turmoil. So um, a solidarity star- strike started, and then different um, workplaces started to join. So basically, you know, this is a kind of and imagine or not, believe it or not, after six months, this movement was registered as a labor union. And it contained 10 million people. <laughs> it wasn't a milliard of years ago. It was it was 40 years ago. It was still possible. Um, as, as, as somebody who tried to introduce a syndicalist union at the University of Warsaw, and um, you know, when, when I started to work with other people on the making of this union, um, we realized that it might be difficult to gather. 10 people to open this union, 10, pe- 10 people, not 10 million, not 10,000, 10. It was the, the University of Warsaw, it's 5,500 workers, employees. So it's not that it's a tiny little university which doesn't have, you know, employees. It's a big university, but everybody is so afraid of, of, of joining a proper union that they prefer not to, basically. So, um, so I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at examples from the local experience and local area. Also, not to exoticize, you know, the experiences of, let's say, black Afro-American, you know, activists, uh, um, which, by the way, I mean, when I translated Bell Hooks, it was actually very useful. It was actually a discourse that opened the eyes of of certain feminists to the problematic of class. So it's amazing how you have to get an author from another hemisphere, basically, to comprehend something which you have, which you deal with on daily basis, and which has been theorized, obviously, by Polish authors, by European authors, and by the you know state communists that we've had not so long ago <laughs> as a as a running system. So, I coming back to the to the previous topic uh, of uh, of the practice of of uh, anti-sexism, for instance, sometimes it's necessary to actually kind of go a little bit further or invite somebody from very far away. You know, and to see our own experience in a perspective that this person is setting. And uh, for me, it was the feminists of color. So feminists, black, like Afro-American feminists, the um, Chicano feminists. But this also matters for the public sphere because Poland is a country which uh, for the majority of our citizens, we think we are white and more or less, you know, similar in our situation, which is obviously untrue. And we have growing uh, discrepancies in income, in in, in position. We have now a population of uh, half a million of Ukrainian citizens living in Poland and work and doing a lot of work for us and being treated like like semi-humans, basically. You know, so our daily racism is not necessarily based on color. Although, unfortunately, right now, for instance, we have Afghan refugees held on the border between Poland and Belarus by the Polish guards, uh, border guards, there are 50 people, defenseless, basically. They didn't bring, you know, arms or, they basically are asylum, asylum seekers. And they are being held for, for a week now on the, on the Polish-Belarusian border by the racist government. I must call my government this way because this is racism. This is, this is purely racist incentive. And luckily some social Democrat parliament members also went there. So they sort of make sure that, you know, the case is televised and nothing bad happens to, to, to those people. But on the other hand, why are they, are they supposed to sit on this border in this no man's land between the borders? Um, 
Um, so basically, coming back to your question about public sphere, we need to think of bigger scale as well. We need to look at our micropolitics, at our daily basis experience, because this is necessary. If we are racist or, or sexist to our you know, partners, children, neighbors, uh, students, everybody, it's, it's just uh, not going to help to build a different society and to understand, you know, bias and privilege, et cetera. But we need also to think about the scale. And I think for many years, the radical left was very preoccupied with micropolitics and was very preoccupied with not looking at the bigger scale. With going like, okay, we're gonna make our little squad, our little this, our little that, and we're gonna sit there peacefully. And But in the meantime, of course, historically, you know, it was perhaps necessary to revisit those micro spheres but you know the the way we build we have we, we are gendered is made not only in micro scale it is made made on the big level of state run schools of uh, churches who in Poland, Catholic Church is a fantastic machine producing inequality on a daily basis you know we have the uh, it's like a monarchy coexisting with a democratic society. On this level already, it's a paradox. I'm not speaking about God because I'm quite, I'm agnostic. I don't have good proofs that God doesn't exist. So I will not quarrel with anyone about it. I don't believe in it, but you know, I'm not gonna contradict it. I'm quite open-minded in this way, but the authoritarian structure of the church in Poland is scary and it, it, is, it should evolve because otherwise it's just gonna bring a bad example to the society which should be learned about equality. In our constitution, we have equality, and yet a priest is a better human being than a normal person. Come on. That's, you know, that, that, that has to be negotiated. And we need to have audacity to claim this kind of revisions. So basically, this is where the public begins. The public, as there is a fantastic author who inspires me a lot, Rosalind Deutsch. She's an um, American scholar working in, in the field of art history and art theory, and she speaks of critical art. Uh, sorry, of public art, not as one that is, you know, residing outdoors. This is a very common definition of public art. It's like something that is outdoors. No, we don't need something to be outdoors. We need public sphere or public art for that matter to renegotiate the relation between what is public and what is private. This is, this is what public art or public sphere is about. So public sphere is not only you know, a debate that happens outside of our uh, of our home. Because as pandemic has shown, we are sitting at homes and, and conducting public debates uh, very well. So what it becomes public when we question certain composition of the society, when we question certain composition of decision-making, when we question the, the, the existing composition of what is perceived as important or common or um, ruly or visible. So when we have the audacity, so having the audacity of, of claiming like, okay, I don't like the way this government is organized. I don't want the, um, the men to have more uh, of a say than women. That, requi that requires a certain audacity. However, it is not only by explicit uh, articulation that we make that, that, that kind of intervention. So this is one of the ways, is if we are powerful enough to have, a, for instance, a show on YouTube, which is which has some audience, which is already a sort of privilege because lots of people try it and they don't get to address a larger audience, right? So, so other ways are, for instance, protests, solidarity protests, you know, resistance to fulfill the duties. Uh, there were fantastic protests of Amazon workers in the time of pandemic. Those workers were overworked uh, uh, and endangered to, 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 to get uh, COVID because uh, Bezos wanted to collect money for his uh, 
whatever he, <laughs> whatever he wanted, right? So, yes, so Mainstream, yeah. Uh, I was thinking of a white, uh, of a white big dick because for some reason I've seen some comments <laughs> online <laughs> that were comparing the spaceships to, to you know a part of, of a male body. But um, uh, anyway, so uh, so you know so 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 those workers they were not you know making shows online or making or appearing in television. But what they did was basically to refuse to pack another thing that we ordered online, right? They refused to fulfill their, their duties. And by that, they made a point about how their safety is not uh, taken care of and how the, the workload and, and working hours are too long. So basically, there was old fashioned because <laughs> many people on the radical left already think that we are so, you know, so immaterialized and so detached from factory pr production modes that we have nothing to do with the 19th century um, forms of strike. By the way, interestingly, the first strikes were apparently made in the, in the US, uh, well, uh, in, in North America by Polish immigrants in 16th or 17th century. I can't remember, but the first the first protest that was called a strike, so the first work-connected kind of resistance was actually it was actually Polish people. So it seems to run in the uh, in the in the <laughs> in the region. And I'm kind of proud of it because it's you know it's it's uh, this is this is a means of uh, you know this is a means of uh, of renegotiating what is common and what, what what is public in the region where I live. So basically this is what I try to you know bring into the global discussion. <laughs> it's like okay we have this example here yeah? we have the example of resisting certain forms of, of, of labor and via that resistance renegotiating. So for instance the women's protests in Poland were called women's strike, right? So what became the uh, international uh, women's strike was actually started in Poland. And was referencing the strikes that I mentioned, the solidarity strike with Anna Valentinovich, so the beginnings of solidarity movement. Our strike of today was referencing, our feminist women's strike was referencing the strikes from 40 years ago. So they, they are interconnected, you know, they are not. <laughs> so, uh, so, 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 so my thinking of, uh, of public sphere is one which does not, um, which does not, which is not detached from workplaces and, and and the sector of work. This is, I think, important. In most classical narratives about the public sphere, labor is sort of privatized. It's basically our private business, where we work, how much we earn. These are not topics. So I'm bringing in not only Karl Marx, who obviously wanted to make the income also a part of a public debate. So a very interesting, you know, example of, of public thinker. But I'm, I'm bringing in the film producer and, uh, and theorist Alexander Kruger, who wrote about counterpublics of the proletariats. So who tried to explain how within the workplaces public um, issues are debated in a different way than the ones uh, uh, the public sphere organized within bourgeoisie, within the upper classes. So he made this point that actually non-bourgeois um, citizens, uh, not middle-class citizens, are also producing public debate, but um, one which is built on different presumptions. So for instance, where the involvement in fulfilling basic needs is not excluded of what is public. That's the main uh, difference. So these are already you know, more, more details of, 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 of the theory I'm talking about, but it's important, it has implications for how we understand anti-fascism. Because in many, I think, in many anti-fascist politics, we are discussing about what, you know, about racism understood as a certain 
idea about the other. It's not about ideas. You know, in, when, when the Polish people are racist towards Ukrainians, it's not about our ideas. Most people don't think too much about Ukraine. It's basically about paying less because somebody does not have a Polish passport. So it's basically connected. So it's in the field of labor where this racism is. And I think it's, it goes the same in the US, right? It's it's channeling the, the, the frustration of the going back to individualism of the individual, um, which Trump did so well, which is not a new tool, uh, you know, and, and, and targeting it towards the other. I mean, you, and you see it at all different levels. It's 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 fascinating. And I, I, I keep going back to the tech space because you see multiple different um, allies of the fascist movement and actual what I would diagnose as fascists, um, you know, a, a, echoing each other and using similar tactics against different people. So on one hand, you might have the Trumpian folks who are targeting Mexicans for taking their jobs. Um, on the other hand, you might have the the uh, like the Jimmy Dore left, which I'm not expecting you to know who they are, um, targeting, you know, women for specifically not, not saying that, you know, it's women's fault, but they're only targeting women who tend to speak up about anything related to equality um, and simultaneously people of color. So it's, it's, it's really interesting how these tactics are, are all very similar about the other. And it's all about tapping in one group's economic anxiety, especially in the US, economic anxiety, status anxiety, and tapping into whatever it is, is their access point. And so, you know, sexism does exist on the left and there's economic anxiety in the left. And so how do you peel off those folks and bring them into this other space? Um, so it's, 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 it's super interesting. Eva, I could talk about this for hours. I could listen to you for hours. <laughs> I, 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 I would love to have you back on. I would love to continue this conversation um, if you're open to it. And, and I'll be back, you know, in the studio, not in, in Greece. But I would really love to do so if, if, if you're open. Very much. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, for me, it was also a pleasure to uh, to talk about it. And when you are in Greece, I, I hope you know all those fires are going to stop soon. And uh, I hope you're safe and and uh, happy there. Mm -hmm. So far, so good. Uh, I, I I'm in Crete now, but I definitely got away from the, the area of the fires earlier this week. So um, it's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I mean, okay, next time we're on, I want to talk about Poland because I remember just. I don't know, half a year ago being like, I can't believe Poland's blocking all refugees to now it's happening in social democratic uh, led countries and central right countries like Greece where everybody is now blocking refugees. Um, so, you know, I think that's a very good indication of how things shift based on, on the far right. Absolutely. I believe also that Poland, you know, since neoliberal times has been a uh, a place where certain things were introduced and then practiced uh, elsewhere. Obviously, you know, Argentina also got uh, their and Chile got their share of neoliberal politics, but Poland was in Europe one of the first countries to have this harsh neoliberal capitalism introduced as, uh, you know, as a shock doctrine, basically. I, I very much agree with Naomi Klein with the diagnostics over there because her chapters about Poland are fantastic as, as, a poly, as, a, as, a, as somebody leaving here. I must only confirm that unfortunately her diagnosis is really good. Uh, so I think and it was fantastic for us to see how this women's protests have spread throughout, you know, throughout uh, the world and how our communication of how we need to resist the um you know the sexist politics um by means of of 
ordinary you know people by by means of strike by means of we had also this moment of using social media which might be interesting for you so one of the first stages of the women's protest in 2016 was an invitation for women to 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 post on 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 social media their black and white picture saying i support black protest black for the clothes we were wearing so basically the color black was important to to signalize the the participation in women's strike so some 250,000 women, you know, posted the um, uh, support uh, message on, on social media. And for many of them, so my hypothesis immediately was that for many of them, it's going to be easier to, to walk on the streets, to, to, to take part in, in street protests after posting on, 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 on social media. And it proved to be true. So many women later were, were um, investigated by my friends, sociologists, you know, who made broad interviews with them and they were confirming that it was actually a kind of mid-step. So in Poland, for instance, the social media um, uh, social media impact on, on the protest was positive in a sense that for many people who are not political, politically active, the social media step was the first step to, you know, to, to uh, bigger activism. So uh, it was not only, you know, those who were um, political activists who orchestrated those strikes, but it was kind of ordinary people as well, as controversial as the category might <laughs> so. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's unfortunate. It's, it, the worse it gets, but it, the more people awaken. I mean, we we saw it as well as with the election with Trump. Um, how many people? But it's what you do with it, right? That's that's a whole other conversation. What do you do? For us, it was the women's march. Where does that go afterwards? Where what seeds are planted, and how do those seeds grow? Maybe it's elections. Maybe it's uh, you know, other organizations, but you know, tough times. <laughs> Ava, thank you very much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Stay safe, and um, hopefully, we'll have you back on soon. Thank you so very much. Uh, enjoy, and uh, yeah, send me the link. <laughs> and thank you so much. It was very generous. Thank you. Bye bye.